Looking to fast forward your practice goals? Commonwealth Financial Network can help you evolve your business by providing entrepreneurial capital, affiliation flexibility, and tailored business strategies. Everything you need to put your practice into the fast lane. Welcome to a better path to success. Welcome to Commonwealth. To learn more, visit Commonwealth.com. Commonwealth Financial Network is a member of FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Hi, I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Welcome to my podcast focused on the future, keys to building a profitable, sustainable, and impactful business. And I'm excited to be partnering with wealthmanagement.com on this. The series will focus on what firms need to embrace to ensure their growth and success for the future. And you'll hear from industry leaders and advisors on what is working for them. The content is directed at firms that are already successful and looking to stay that way, and also for those who are focused on taking their firms to that next level. I have a great lineup of guests in store, and today I'm talking with Maurice Miller. Maurice is a financial advisor and managing director of the Miller's Wealth Management. He is a proud CFP, and on his firm's website, he states, I believe in thinking out of the box and I'm not afraid to challenge conventional wisdom in my approach to investing and preserving wealth. I love that. Well, welcome, Maurice. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Great, great. Well, you know what I'm loving looking at is the websites of my guests before they come on. And just about every person I'm speaking to has something in common. There is something very personal and authentic shared on their websites so that your clients and prospects feel they know a little bit about you before they start working with you. And one thing that you share, for example, is how you decided to become a financial advisor in the first place. What was that catalyst? And I love your story. So I would love for you to share that with our listeners today. Tell us a little bit about your journey into the wealth management industry. Sure. You know, my wealth management journey took a lot of twists and turns, but it really started with my father. That's where even the name, the Miller's Wealth Management, comes from. It's to honor his legacy because he started it. But he worked for the city of Cleveland Water Department, and he saw very early on that I did not have a future in a labor job. <laughs> so he, he said, go to college and study finance because it dealt with money and you'd always be able to find a job. So that was practical enough for me. So I declared finance as a major, but I never knew what I was going to do with that degree. And two very monumental things happened during my junior year of college. Uh, for one, I got into the core classes of my major, which meant I was taking finance classes and we played a virtual stock exchange game that year where we traded fake money and I just fell in love with the markets. But I remember one of my classmates telling me we did this in high school and it just felt like a punch to the gut for me. It didn't feel fair because even though I'm getting a head start in this, I still realize I was behind some of my peers. And that same year we had a guest speaker come to our class and he was a financial advisor but really, what really stood out for me was he explained, I'm able to help people with life's important decisions that last for generations. I'm able to be compensated for it. 
And the last part was he said, I have freedom over my schedule. So when my kids have a ball game, I just get up and go. I don't ask permission. And for me, who is uh, naturally a little rebellious, I just love the idea of not asking permission. So I said, at that point, I'm going to be a financial advisor. But then the other part was, how do I do it? The first couple of years of my college career weren't that great. So my grades weren't phenomenal. Matter of fact, they were pretty poor. <laughs> and being that my GPA was low, I couldn't get internships. So that experience just wasn't there. But I did get a job offer from a large firm. And he said, Maurice, I think you'll do great. And I said, great, how do I get clients? And he said, call your friends and family. And my follow-up question was, what if they don't have the resources to support my career, then what? And there was this blank stare. And I just knew at that point, at 22 years old, not knowing anything about the industry, that's probably not the best route to go. So I actually took a job internally with a company, uh, which was a bank where I could learn the business, where I could get some experience. And from that position, one of my first mentors told me, hey, I have a job for you with the bank. You would be what they call a licensed banker. You would do some investing. You would also do some investment management and bank management and learn the business. So he convinced me to move to Michigan three years into my career. And then a few months after that, he left the company. So here I am, 25 years old, not knowing anything, literally scared. But I also thought this was an opportunity because I actually wanted his job. Mm -hmm. So I talked to the managers at the, uh, at the bank and they said, give us a few months, show us what you can do. And I did that. But I always knew that that wouldn't be long term. This is kind of my training ground. Right. And 18 years into the industry, thankful to be a CFP, now independently building my practice with my wife. And as they say, the rest is history. You know, um, I love that story. I love that your father inspired you, that he's, you know, he recognized that, you know, financial services was an industry where it could, if you had a degree in finance, it could be applied to so many different types of careers. That's a that's a great point. And also that you had a guest speaker that was a financial advisor. Um, so always like thinking about now those advisors that are listening to this podcast and you're saying, How, what can you do to make an impact, right? Or to give back to the profession. Going back to your high school or college as a guest speaker to talk about what a, what a great career this is, I think is so, so important. And then the second part of some of the things that you were saying, uh, the externship is a, uh, is a program. In fact, Hannah Moore was one of my first guests on this podcast, where there are a lot of career changers and students that are coming into the profession. And the externship is like an online training program. And when she surveys them about why do you want to become a financial planner, they say, to help people, a path to entrepreneurship, and work-life balance, flexibility. Absolutely. So a lot of what you just said is so such proof on what the next generation of planners that are coming in are saying. But I want to touch on um, something that you mentioned in your answer, right, about 
why you didn't immediately become a practicing financial planner. And that was had to do with you calling, you know, your friends and family. So there are a lot of reasons why someone doesn't just join this profession or stay in it for long term. And you think one major reason why is around compensation structure, and it actually almost prevented you from becoming advisors. So yes. can you discuss your thoughts on this and like, what are some suggestions you have to address this, you know, pretty significant issue? I think it's twofold. As you mentioned, it's the exposure of getting in and then staying in. I think the first part is that we as an industry just have to do a better job of letting people know that this profession exists. And it's somewhat odd because wealth management is not new. It's actually one of the oldest industries uh, in history, but it's almost like this little kept secret. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the first part is really exposing the industry and helping people connect with their whys in life. For me, yeah, everybody wants to make money, but that wasn't my primary driving force. It was actually helping people and the freedom of my time. And if I look at my natural skills, I'm naturally a teacher. So even though I'm not in the classroom, my teaching is often on Zoom or on a whiteboard. But then when we talk about compensation, you know, for me, when I was first offered the position, 22 years old, I have all these student loans, I have no income. They were saying, hey, pay for your licensing and we'll reimburse you once you pass. But I didn't have any money. So I just knew that wasn't going to work. And when you say pay for the licensing, is that the SIE, right? At the time, there was no SIE, but it it was my my Series 7 and my 66 and life and health and things like that. I just didn't have the money. So even if I wanted to take that route, I, I, I just really couldn't. And I think when we think about both ends of people coming in and career changers, telling somebody your resume is great. We we think you're going to do great. You have the skills we want, but we're not going to pay you just doesn't work. And we have to have a real talk around how advisors are compensated, because essentially we're dealing with firms who create investment products from scratch, but we can't figure out how to create compensation models that work for everybody. So I think the first thing is that we have to start people with a base salary, which I know some firms do. And maybe as they're earning revenue, defer that, you know, turn it into a deferred compensation until they can get that model to where it's sustainable for them to move off a salary But I think the other part about compensation is your compensation is tied to your success, which is often tied to your ability to acquire clients. So there has to be some uh, mentorship, but also sponsorship by more senior advisors to help those coming in, because ultimately you can be the most average person in the world. But if you have somebody who's teaching you what to do, you will succeed. Yeah. And I I think even teaming. So, you know, every firm is a little different. Some firms, you know, are, I think, take some of the compensation situations into consideration, but the majority don't. And I think it's a real deterrent, as as do you, obviously, 
to having someone be attracted to this industry. It's a, it's, it is considered a risky type of compensation structure and it is keeping, I think, some uh, communities out. So I want to talk about that, specifically the Black community. So how, in your opinion, from your own experience as a Black man, how does this issue specifically affect the Black community? And does the compensation structure impact how many Black students and Black financial professionals come into and stay into the financial planning profession? I believe so. Uh, Well, I think we first even have to acknowledge that you probably have the stats better than I do, Suzanne. I think they say 80% of advisors don't make it. So to me, that's an industry problem, not a people problem. Because regardless of the race or ethnicity of most advisors coming in, they just don't make it. But when we talk in specifics about the Black community, uh, we also have to understand that many times how people view money, how they discuss money is through cultural lenses. Mm -hmm. And while we can't paint a broad brush, many times within the Black community, talking about money is pretty taboo, especially with someone within your family, if you are then trying to turn them into clients. We also have to think about the fact that the average Black household only has about a tenth of the wealth of the average household, a white household. So all else being equal, Many times, Black advisors, if they're naturally serving their demographic, Mm -hmm. have to acquire a lot more clients. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you take both of those pieces, and then we're talking about your entire compensation is tied to your ability to penetrate that community. So I think it all comes down to us recognizing the different cultural impacts of money and having some understanding and empathy around the advisors we're bringing in. Because even some of the firms that do offer, let's say a salary for the first couple of years, they have pretty aggressive goals for the advisors over those first couple of years where they may not be able to bring in the assets under management that the firm wants and then they, they get let go. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, you know, I had Luis Rosa on as uh, my guest a few weeks back, and he was saying kind of the cultural lens, the cultural discussion is similar in the Latin community, in the Hispanic community. And I think they're similar in the Asian community. So, you know, I, I do believe that that culture, and again, that's part of this focused on the future podcast discussion is we always kind of tie in culture and the importance of culture in in firms, but also the culture of the investor of the future and the investors that you're serving and understanding that your uh, process or your marketing or your approach may need to be different based on these these individual communities, which is what I think I'm hearing you say. Correct. And, and I think one thing that I also didn't mention is just the fact of when we talk about Black people becoming advisors, you know, as the certified financial planner number etches closer to 100,000, which is very exciting for me because I've been a CFP holder for almost 10 years. I want to say less than 3,000 are actually Black. 
So there sometimes is a feeling of, do I even belong here? Yeah. Because I don't see anybody who looks like me or I see very few. Thankfully, with technology that has shifted. But I remember what it was like starting in this business 18 years ago. Yeah. Oh, listen, I know. I mean, I've been in this. I've been uh, serving this industry or doing business in the industry for close to 25 years. And the majority still, the majority of conferences are predominantly white. Um, it's just the, the the makeup of the industry. I definitely see things starting to change, but you're right. That 3% number is, um, it's kind of been like that for a little bit. I think we're starting to see numbers because firms are making conscious efforts to think about some of these situations and some of these areas that, that you just pulled out. Um, yeah, I think that's so important. And even um, I, again, mentioned the externship because the demographic of the of those that are taking going through the program, we have um, it's 10 percent black, 10 percent Hispanic and 10 percent Asian and 40 percent women. Now, again, these are aspiring financial planners, but it shows the the a snapshot of the future and these kinds of discussions around compensation structure have to be happening now because we could do all the best work we are doing to to recruit in diverse talent but they won't stay if this is a um if if some of these things don't change so i really applaud you you kind of bringing this up and and talking about it too and from your own experience so the other thing that uh, I noticed on your website too, um, and we've talked about it in the past at various events, but you're really passionate about financial literacy and this all ties in together, by the way. And um, also why it's really important to start educating at an early age. In fact, you actually created a financial literacy curriculum designed for middle and high school students. Right. I don't know where you do this in your spare time, but that's amazing. <laughs> Um, so what are some key tips advisors that are listening can pass on to their clients about ways to best talk to their children about money? What are some things that you've learned through your experience? As a husband and a father of five young children, uh, yes, you heard correct five. So we have a, we have a lot of college to be planning for, but I try to help clients apply the same things that we do in our household. And I think a lot of times we don't give our children enough credit for what those little brilliant minds can actually understand if we break things down in their terms. So what we try to do with our children, and this is what I advise clients to do and even other advisors to do to help their clients teach their kids about money, is help them create systems around their money. So with our children, we tell them you, with every dollar, you invest, you save for maybe shorter term goals, you give some away. And then the last part is you spend some because you should enjoy the fruit of your labor. Right. Love it. We also help them understand that the best investment strategy is starting early. We know that rather than rather than trying to time the stock market, the best thing is time in the stock market. 
So it's the same way with teaching our children. So we teach them early enough in their own terms, and then they grow from there. So we help our clients, children, and our children understand how much things actually cost. You know, sometimes as you're a kid and you might ask your parents for McDonald's and they say, do you have any McDonald's money? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's what somebody told me on LinkedIn. That was what her parents told her. But we actually break down with our kids how much things cost. And then we show them if you're 16 years old, here's how much money you can expect to earn. And here's how long you will have to work for that American Girl doll, which is what my 10 year old loves. <laughs> but we also help them understand there's something called taxes. Kids have a big problem with taxes. And frankly, I know a lot of adults do as well. But but the last part that we do is we have family meetings. And I think that's the most impactful thing. It's all based on comfort level. But I think it's important that we as families talk to our children about Here's where we are financially. Our children that range from 10 down to three, they know how much income mom and dad make. They know how much assets we have. And then we actually go down the list and help them create their own ownership to where we show them this is your 529. This is your life insurance because we want them to think about the generations that don't exist yet. And then we actually make them choose their own investments. So this weekend, we spent time talking about all the individual stocks that they wanted to pick. And that's what we try to do. And it's been proven to be effective within our household and other clients who are implementing the same things. Yeah, that's such great advice. So like from my own experience growing up, my, you know, I, I did a podcast not too long ago called, you know, it was like your money, what's your first money memory and how that impacts the way that you behave and you think about money later in life. And, you know, my, I, I remember this is, you can, I'm dating myself here, everybody. <laughs> um, I had like a bank book, right. And my, my dad used to, you know, I used to go to the bank with my dad and like, if I would get like first communion money, you know, um, say I'd get like, you know, $10 or $20, whatever was given back then. And then uh, after, you know, after, you know, a little time period, say I had, say I had $100. And um, I'd be and my dad, I'd be like, I really want that Barbie or whatever. And my dad would be like, okay, let me show you how it works. How much does the Barbie cost? Anyway, going through that whole process really helped me understand money, I think at an early, at much earlier age than most. And so I, I love what you're teaching and what you're what you're doing with your children. Um, so my own personal experience is that that really works. The second is a business thing, right? So so many advisors I talk to are trying to differentiate themselves. How do they engage with current clients? How do they attract prospects? Well, wouldn't it be cool if you did a webinar on, hey, parents, here are a couple tips on how you can talk to your kids about money so that you're setting them up for future success. It, it, it gives you some uh, tips, a platform to, to do it, ideas, because most people are uncomfortable talking about money. And so I would think that'd be a really great way to attract prospects and engage with current clients as well. And when you're acting as a thought leader, acting as someone that can that can give them some advice around an area that may be an area that's not necessarily having to do with money, managing their money, but you're there as a resource for them, right? 
Absolutely. I would agree. hundred percent. That's awesome. So from your perspective, like switching gears now, we're talking a little bit about business development. What are some key considerations that, that you feel are critical to firms and advisors in achieving success in this industry? And especially as the people that it serves, as we've alluded to, continues to evolve. I think it's really embracing technology and understanding how that has changed our our industry, not just if it's going to change, but how it's changed. When I first started, clients wanted to buy an investment. There was a long, thick stack of papers. Now we have DocuSign (laughs) and we can get things done in five minutes. Thank goodness. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It was like buying a house, just opening up an investment account years ago. But I think we have to understand with those changing demographics where technology fits. For instance, there are a lot of non-financial advisors who are giving advice that clients are listening to. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I know some view it as a threat. But there is a lot of growing demographics who felt like they've been ignored. So now you have a lot of content creators who are putting the information out to it, and it's helping educate a client base that frankly hasn't been reached, whether those are younger investors and age or younger investors and experience that's out there. And I also think through technology, our clients have a greater ability to do research. I just think about when I started, clients never asked me about the board of directors of the investment firm that we're recommending. Mm. They never asked me about what was in that mutual fund outside of the top holdings. Now we're having clients come to the table who they want full transparency of seeing how that money's invested. So we have to know that Many clients are coming in a lot more educated than where they started, which I think is a great thing, but also seeing that people are getting information from Instagram, they're getting information from YouTube and all the other social media platforms. And I believe if firms want to capture that client base, then they have to adapt to it. I'm seeing a lot more firms now allowing the advisors to set up YouTube channels and Instagrams, which years ago was a big no-no. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, even like TikTok, which pains me to say, but when you uh, <laughs> when you see... I've never been on TikTok for the record. So Me neither. Uh, I will say, I, I don't even know how it works. But um, <laughs> again, uh, we're the... <laughs> We're the minority in that because we, we can join at the same time. That's what okay. All right. Let's maybe we do a whole podcast on how to do TikTok or what. Okay. What else. Um, but you know, I work with an organization that is focused on uh, black college students uh, from HBCUs, and we were figuring out ways to attract them to this career fair, right? And we were thinking about the ways that we market and the way that we consume information and the way that we look at things. And we ended up getting an intern that was from one of the HBCUs that we were looking, um, that we were working with. And she like ripped our plan apart. And she was like, no, 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 that's not how we 
are looking at information. We, we, you got to go on Instagram, TikTok, you know, or YouTube, like everything that you just said. And so for advisors that really want to make sure that they're um, capturing uh, the interest of the next generation of investors, maybe they don't have the assets now, but they will. And you need to start thinking about some of this stuff now. It's all about uh, a different approach and a different way of thinking. I always think it's a, a great idea to enlist interns into your practice to help you start thinking these these areas through because you just may not be the right person to be thinking about them that way, you know? A- absolutely. I was part of an organization that was a conglomerate of different professionals. So wealth advisors, attorneys, accountants, and we did just that. We we had an intern come in and we were trying to get younger college students. And to your same point, he came in and said, no, 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 <laughs> wrong date, wrong venue, wrong messaging. He said, none of this will work. And by working with him, we knew how to shift things. And I think to your point, even though they don't have the assets, we have a lot more younger people coming right out of college with pretty high incomes. So there are people who are ready to invest and they're looking to find organizations that are willing to work with them where they are and grow with them. Absolutely. And you're, you're right. They're coming out of school and they're, they're um, getting some pretty significant jobs, especially even in the technology field. They're making some good money. And uh, we, we, we as an industry should not be ignoring them. You know, I also wanted to touch on something that you brought up in your answer, which was the types of investments and like who is, what are the companies that those, the, the, within that mutual fund that are, that are, um, that the mutual funds uh, uh, components are supporting and who are those, uh, those individuals that make up that company and board of directors. Never in a million years would I have thought that that is becoming a really significant question that younger investors primarily, but also investors in the know are starting to ask, those that really care about the environment or a lot of social issues. I know I had Peggy Haslish on, who's a a gay woman financial advisor, and she was talking about there are a lot of her clients, she primarily serves the LGBTQ community, that um, they have very specific focus um, firms that they don't want to be working with or supporting. And so these are new questions, I believe. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, are, are you hearing more of these questions start to come up around the investments than you have that, maybe when you first started? Absolutely. I think also what's happening is that people are more comfortable speaking on their core beliefs with their advisor. Mm -hmm. I, you know, years ago, what would we say? Don't talk about money or politics (laughs) now or religion. But now these are core conversations that we're having with clients. And I think it's a great thing because somebody's core spiritual beliefs, uh, maybe somebody's core political beliefs, their familial beliefs. Those are really the driving forces on how they make decisions. So I'm excited that those things are coming to the forefront of the conversation. But as you as you said, they they never were there years ago. So regardless of what someone's core beliefs are, 
those things are now coming into the conversations and clients are asking, how can you help me knowing I believe X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Yes. I, that's a, such a great point. I'm so glad that you brought that up. So we're down to our last question. It's the same question I ask on every podcast. With the title and theme of the podcast focused on the future, keys to building a sustainable, profitable, and impactful business in mind, what is your last line? What key takeaway do you want to leave our audience with? I think there is no better time to be in wealth management. We have not only changing demographics, but we have a huge amount of opportunity for our advisors who've maybe served the industry for 30 and 40 years to actually partner with a younger advisor to make sure that that succession planning is happening within the industry. And I believe the firms that address the succession planning issues that we see, that address the technology and that get to those clients early on will we'll win the battle. Yeah, I love that. I really do believe, I've, I've believed it for a long time. This is such a great profession. We just need to get the word out. And there's so much opportunity, again, with the, with the, you know, the new advisors that are coming in, with the existing advisors that are here. Really, it's changed from an industry of, of you know, what can I sell you to how can I help you? And um, it's with advisors like yourself that are really leading the charge. So again, thank you so much for being my guest today. Your voice and perspective is important for all of us in the industry to hear and recognize. And thank you for all you're doing for your current and your future investors. Please continue to inspire and educate around building wealth. It's so, so critical. I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Thanks for listening. And I hope this episode leaves you feeling even more excited to be focused on the future. Looking to fast forward your practice goals? Commonwealth Financial Network can help you evolve your business by providing entrepreneurial capital, affiliation flexibility, and tailored business strategies. Everything you need put your practice into the fast lane. Welcome to a better path to success. Welcome to Commonwealth. To learn more, visit commonwealth.com. Commonwealth Financial Network is a member of FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor.